Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Orville Roach. Welcome, welcome folks to Roach on Recovery. This is your host, Orville Roach, going solo today. My producer, co-host, engineer, and call screener is on the disabled list. We'll get to that. 646-564-9909 is the number. 646-564-9909 is the number. If you want to call and speak to me, if you just want to listen to the show, you can go to our show website, and that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Again, that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. And you can also listen to us via our call-in line, which I just gave to you, 646-564-9909. If that's your only means, then by all means do so. We got a great show today, great topic, timely topic, which we will get to. But first, some uh, housekeeping, some recap, some news, etc. As I said in my opening, our co-host, our humble co-host, is on the disabled list today, and hopefully, some some curing tonic. He received some curing tonic last night with the. Big unexpected win by his San Francisco 40 winers, I mean Niners. Hopefully that will get him back healthy, ASAP. Uh, But real quick trip around the NFL. So we know, we know that my Cowboys, my Cowboys. How about them Cowboys? My New York Giants. Yes, that's odd. Not only am I a fervent New York Giant football, New York football giant. I have to emphasize New York football giants because the San Francisco Giants have the same name, and so you can't just say the Giants anymore. But I'm also a Dallas Cowboy fan, and so I've been asked many times over the years by friend and family member. 
will spare the names to protect the innocent. How is it possible that you can root for two teams that are in the same division, you being a New Yorker at that, rooting for their arch enemy, the Dallas Cowboys? Spare you how I became a Cowboys fan, but it was never an issue throughout the many years because usually one team was up while another was down. And with that, I never had to worry about picking and choosing until mm, mid-2000s when they were both kind of, you know, expected to be good teams, and they were fairly good teams. And so basically, I said when people would ask me, oh, the Giants and Cowboys are coming up, who are you going to root for? And I would say, well, I got to look at each team objectively and see which one, if if they made it to, pl- to the playoffs, had the better team to go all the way. And as evidenced by the two Super Bowls the Giants won in 2007 and 2011 uh, seasons, that's who I was going for because they had the better team. And when the Cowboys had the better team back in the 90s when they had their dynasty, that's who I was going for because they had the better team. This year, no doubt, on paper, the Cowboys have the better team, so that's who I'm going for. So in the matchup on Sunday night, I am pulling for the Cowboys because they need the division win against a division opponent uh, to have a better record at the end of the year. So, But it takes nothing away from my love for my New York Giants, and it still aches my heart when they lose. And I can imagine the New York papers in the back and the back uh you know, the back page headlines. I can only imagine. Anyway, surprising win for the Niners last night. No one expected it, but good for them. Good way to start off the Jim Tom Zula era, the new coach that no one ever heard of. The other thing I really want to quickly talk about, there's been a lot of devastating injuries in the NFL this year and more this first week, weekend. I can't remember back in the 70s or 80s when most of the fields were grass. This is just my theory of so many devastating injuries, leg injuries, lower leg injuries at that. So to me, it has something to do with the you know the the field surface that they're playing on, the artificial surface. I think if they were playing on grass, as we know, dirt and grass give. So if your foot gets planted in the wrong way and someone's pushing on you in one direction and the foot's trying to go the other direction, the dirt and the grass give, and so your your foot has a better chance of you know moving a little bit and and shifting the weight. But when you're on this turf, even though they've come, I mean, the technology with this turf has, you know, it's not like back in the day when it was just like carpet laid over concrete. Um, but still, it's, it, nothing is like nature, right? Nothing is like grass and dirt. So these guys are still coming up with the, these injuries. But they'll solve it. It's cheaper for them to have turf. It's easier to maintain. And especially if you have an indoor stadium, the grass is not going to grow, obviously, indoors but they can somehow figure out to get marijuana to grow indoors. Think about that. We are midway. I'm getting feedback in my mic, so y'all will have to tell me if y'all also hear it on your end. So maybe it's just me hearing it in my headphones. Um, I'm trying out a new mic today, by the way. 
So hopefully, for me and what I hear, it sounds better than the mic I was using last week. I don't know what it is in mic problems that I've had throughout in our first year. We're coming up in our first year of broadcasting this show, and I've gone through like three mics. Uh, we're midway through National Recovery Month, and OCG went on a picnic today with other providers in the local community as a part of the National Recovery Month celebration. And from what I was told, a good time was had by all. And of course, in the best tradition, in the best tradition of OCG and its forefather, Daytop, uh, they stayed behind and cleaned up shop and made the picnic area look like it was when they arrived, clean and tidy. So I was pleased to hear that. Today we're going to talk, I don't think uh, there's, if there's not a better time. Last week we talked about the foundational unwritten philosophies of honesty, trust in your environment, act as if, and responsible love and concern. So I was thinking last week and over the weekend, we haven't talked about and I use the word daytop first because this is where it came from and this is where it started. And I put on the show description OCG in parentheses because we just adopted it along with everything else. But the daytop philosophy is a topic in and of itself and by itself. And that's what I'm going to talk about today. And I wrote as my show titled The Daytop OCG in parentheses, philosophy, the individual, the individual's recovery manifesto. That's what I have uh, named it as of yesterday. But in reality, if we think back, that's what it has always been. And what we're going to do today, I'm going to read it first in its entirety and then I'm going to do something which I love to do is go line by line and read between the lines and talk about what each line actually means. And this is something we actually do at our graduation ceremonies. We have residents get up and read. One, one resident will read the line. Another resident will read the meaning of the line. And so that's part of what I'm going to do today. So this the daytop philosophy was written by a resident. I was I was told the name way back when. I do not remember the person's name, so I put name unknown. But the person is really not unknown. I just don't remember the name. But it was written in the mid-60s and adopted as the philosophy for daytop. And we have to be careful when we think of that because sometimes when – I would be speaking to people outside of the program, and we talk about the philosophy, the OCG philosophy. They confuse that with our treatment philosophy. You know, your treatment philosophy is how you go about providing treatment. What's your philosophy of treatment? Whereas the daytop philosophy, OCG philosophy, is for the individual client. And it's their manifesto for them to follow throughout treatment. It has nothing to do with how we operate and provide treatment. So that's the distinction between the two. And sometimes people get them confused. 
So let me start off by reading the data philosophy. I am here because there is no refuge, finally from myself. Until I confront myself in the eyes and hearts of others, I am running. Until I suffer them to share my secrets, I have no safety from them. Afraid to be known, I can know neither myself nor any other. I will be alone. Where else but in our common ground can I find such a mirror? Did you catch that? Together, I can at last appear clearly to myself. Let me repeat that. Here together, I can at last appear clearly to myself, not as the giant of my dreams, nor the dwarfs of my fears, but as a person, part of the whole, with my share in its purpose. In this ground, I can take root and grow, not alone anymore as in death, but alive to myself and to others. So that's the Daytop OCG philosophy. Every client that comes in has to learn it, memorize it. And it, the purpose of that is for them to learn what the each stanza, each sentence means and how it applies to them and see if they can actually understand the meaning of it between the lines. So let's start with the first line. I am here because there is no refuge finally from myself. What does that mean? I've reached a point where I realize that it's impossible to continue to try and hide from myself and run from myself. You've heard us talk about this before many times on the show. You can't hide from you. You follow you wherever you go. So it's saying, I'm here, sitting here now, because there's no place else for me to go. I've tried everything. I've been everywhere. There's no refuge from me. I can't run from myself. I kept, I've tried hiding from myself. It doesn't, didn't work. I've tried drugs. I've tried this. I've tried that. There's no refuge from myself. Finally, Until I confront myself in the eyes and hearts of others, I am running. So until I pump those brakes, until I can eventually come to a stop long enough to take a cold, hard look at myself and my life, I'm just going to, metaphorically speaking, continue to keep running, whether I I realize it consciously or not. Did you get that? So until I, at some point, realize to myself, confront myself, and then also in the eyes and hearts of other people, so usually that would be a loved one, so a spouse, a parent, an aunt, a grandparent, someone saying to you, hey, This isn't working here. You need to get some help. And then simultaneously or not, you coming to that same realization, I agree. I need help. 
this is not working. So until I confront myself in the eyes and hearts of others, I am running. Next line. Until I suffer them to share my secrets, I have no safety from them. This is a difficult one for people. It kind of ties into some of our subject and content matter from other shows. Until I suffer them to share my secrets. I remember I had to read that one over and over because I, I thought it was so slickly worded. Until I muster up the courage to share with others who I really am, my experiences, and yes, this includes Yes, this includes the good, the bad, and the ugly. Sometimes we know we don't want to share the ugly. And just a little bit of the bad. We have no problem with the good. But until I suffer them to share my secrets, the good, the bad, and the ugly, I will not be able to escape them. I'll continue to bear the burden of them on my own. That's why we keep telling people about, you know, we use the word, we say you got to share, you got to talk, and it sounds so simple and just, you know, it's like sometimes they look at us like you just got to be more complex and scientific and deeper than that. No, 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 until I suffer them to share my secret. That's what it means. Until until you share with other people, you know, your experiences that happened to you during your either your addictive state when you were really suffering or prior to that or post that, until you can share who, you know, about yourself. You're not going to Escape it. You're just going to bear the burden of it on your, by yourself. And that's not what we want. So those things that comprise the good, the bad, and the ugly, they'll continue to trouble me. They'll continue to impact my life. And that's the exact opposite of what we want. Our ultimate goal is regardless of what you may have experienced in your life up to this point, our ultimate goal is to get you to a certain point that those experiences no longer have a negative impact on your life. When I say negative impact, sometimes people think that means, oh, so you mean that I, I won't, that they won't be there anymore and it's like you never have, no. That they won't impact you, the decisions you make. They won't impact your behavior. Anymore, They won't control what you do. That's what I mean when I say dictate. It will, it, it will no longer dictate how you go about living your life. You'll still have memory of those experiences. You'll, t- you'll still talk about those experiences, but their impact on your life will no longer be controlling. You flip the script. You're now controlling it and how it impacts you. At least that's the goal. So 
he wrote, first there's no refuge from me. I can't hide from myself. Then I got to confront myself, not only by myself, but in but in front, you know, with other people, and lay it out there. And if I don't do that, I'm basically still running. Because why that's important, that second line, until I confront myself in the eyes and hearts of others, I am running. When you're an addict, you're the last person to be making the ultimate analysis. You can contribute as the affected person in the analysis. But there needs to be another person there to say, you know what, you're right. You do need help. Or if you're sitting there in the mirror saying, I'm okay. I'm not that bad. Look at me. I still look good. I feel good. This this lifestyle is having no impact on me. I'm still able to go to work, et cetera, et cetera. So it takes another person to come in and say, yeah, but, but despite all that, look at all the other collateral damage that's going on. So that's the others, the eyes and hearts of others. They have to be included. Otherwise, I'm still running. I don't want to talk to anybody else. They might say something I don't agree with. And then until I suffer them to share my secrets, I have no safety from them. Until I have mustered up that courage to share and talk about my experiences, good, bad, and ugly, I have no safety from them. What does that mean, I have no safety from them? Safety, safety, safety. You know, when when you're safe, you feel secure, warm, you know, think of a baby, keeping a baby safe. So I have no safety. That means they're always going to, you're going to feel, always feel exposed, feel vulnerable, feel, you know, like you always got to cover up and protect and so on and so forth. But when you let it out, when you share, when you purge, it can't hurt you anymore. There's no, you, you know, there's no need to worry anymore about those things. It's for the universe to handle. It's for the person I'm sharing with. Let them take some of it off my shoulders. Because if I don't do that, I'm not going to have any safety from them. It's always going to be there, be there, be there. This is that secret we try and get people to understand. Very hard, very hard concept, simple concept, but hard for them to connect the two together. Afraid to be known. This is the next line. Afraid to be known, I can know neither myself nor any other. I will be alone. Afraid to be known, I can know neither myself nor any other. I will be alone. So I cannot be afraid to let other others know the real me. So that means I have to challenge that fear of letting others know the real me with courage. Otherwise, I will not find out who I am, nor will I experience learning who others are. It goes hand in hand. See, when you find out who you really are, there comes a confidence with that, a building of the self-esteem, the strengthening of the core, the character. 
etc. that assist you with not only wanting to, but learning how to learn other people. So, afraid to be known, I can know neither myself nor any other. So, if I don't get to know who I am, the real me, I can know neither myself nor any other. And then the last few words of that is, I will be alone, which is not what we want. It's not part of the goals. I will be alone. I'll continue to experience what it feels like to be alone, yet be surrounded by many. And this does happen. Now, not so much in the OCG world of the much smaller facilities than the daytop world of the large facilities. 250 people compared to 32, 38 bed facilities that we have in our common ground. So there's a huge difference. So you can think that in a 250-bed facility that theoretically somebody could lose themselves, if you will, like if, if it's their intent to get lost in the weeds a little bit, no pun intended, they could. They can try. But it's interesting. Miraculously, it's simultaneously very difficult. You would think, though, that, wow, 250 people, you know, I can just, you know, hide here in the shadows and in the corners and get by and no one's going to bother me, confront me or, you know, talk to me or whatever the case may be. But that's not actually what the experience is. So what it proved is that no matter how many people you're around, because even in the small facility of 32 people, someone will still try to not be seen, not be involved. And as a result, surrounded by 250, surrounded by 32, still feel like you know they're alone. And we said that many times, you know, you can feel lonely, you can feel alone. There's a difference between the two, by the way. Even if you're so in a group, in a room full of packed full of people, and there's reasons for that. So that's one of the things we're trying to avoid. Afraid to be known, I can know neither myself nor any other. I will be alone. So I got to know myself, and in knowing myself, I get to know others, and I won't be alone. Where else but in our common ground can I find such a mirror? Now, we weren't trying to be uh, selfish. We didn't insert our OCG didn't insert that in there. That was always in the philosophy. But when we were looking for a name, when we uh, separated from the parent company, Daytop, and the Daytop Foundation back in 2007, and we held a contest of what should our new name be. The name was the only thing we couldn't keep. 
we couldn't keep the JTOP name. We can keep everything but the name. So we had to come up with a new name contest. And all current residents, graduates, staff, family members of staff, all pets, everyone that was eligible could submit a name and eventually got narrowed down to five, then three, and then the leadership team picked. Uh, I believe there was two people who won the contest who came up with the name Our Common Ground. It was fitting. And I don't think anyone anyone was consciously looking in the daytime philosophy to see if we can find the name in there because <laughs> there were some crazy submissions. Um, which I won't get into right now, but in another show, we'll, we'll probably list some of them because some of them were very funny. But in all seriousness, when we when we got down to uh, the final three, it was a unanimous choice of our common ground because we said, wow, I mean, look at how it fits. Where else? But in our common ground, can I find such a mirror? But in the context that the writer of the Daytop philosophy actually meant it, was where else but in a place, and so this applies to any place where recovery is taking place and taking hold. So it's not just in OCG, it's not just in Daytop. It's not just in P90. It's not just in Hope House. It's not just in the Latino Commission. It's not just in Samaritan slash Data. Wherever recovery is taking place is the answer to the question, the rhetorical question of where else but in our common ground can I find such a mirror? Where else but here? And only here where else can I find others who are just like me, who have had similar experiences like me, who knows what it feels like to be me? Where else can I find my mirror or mirrors, plural? Because it is plural. You'll find your mirrors, not just one person. You'll find multiple people. So where else but in our common ground can I find such a mirror? So we get a kick us here at OCG when, when that line is said because it emphasizes it's in our common ground. Here, us. But in truth, it's not talking about us, OCG. It's talking about wherever. Wherever we're all gathered that we all have that one thing in common. Where we, we're mirrors because of our experience. That's the common ground that, that they're referring to in that line. But we'll steal it or borrow it. Here together, I can at last appear clearly to myself. So it's saying here, together, all of us, with with everyone's help, not just me, because remember what we said about the addict, the last person 
now to be evaluating and analyzing themselves by themselves. So here together, I can at last appear clearly to myself. I can finally, I finally can now see who I am. Helped by my own surrendering to the process. And listen now, the responsible love and concern. Remember that from last week? The responsible love and concern of my peers. Here together I can last appear clearly to myself. So with the help of my peers, that's the together. I can really now get a clear picture of who I am. See, they're the ones that really give me the clear picture. So there's no mistaking of who you are. Your peers come in and they don't pull your real peers, those who really care about you, those who really want to see you make it, don't pull any punches. They don't care about how you feel. They don't care about hurting your feelings. They care about you making it. And so they're going to be honest. And if in being honest, your feelings get hurt, you're going to survive that. No one ever passed away from hurt feelings that I'm aware of. It's more important that they're honest with you so that together you can at last appear clearly to yourself, i.e. myself. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, the last part of the daytop philosophy, the important part, the whole part is important, but this is where it gets down to the nitty gritty. So quick commercial music break we'll take and we'll, we'll be right back. You hear that? What you won't do, you do for love. You'll try anything, but you won't give up. That's the attitude you need to have in recovery. You've got to love or learn to love yourself first. You've got to be willing to try anything that will help you succeed. And most importantly, you can never give up. Visit us at ocgworks.org. OCG, where hope grows. Uh, what you won't do, do for love. You try everything, but you don't give up.
Welcome back to Roach on Recovery. We're talking about the Daytop philosophy, the individual's recovery manifesto. And that was a commercial break, by the way, not a music break. So we are at the last stanza of the philosophy. Prior to commercial, we were talking about here together. I can last appear clearly to myself. Next line. Not as the giant of my dreams, nor the dwarfs of my fears. Hear that now. Not as the giant of my dreams. So that's one extreme end nor the dwarfs of my fears. That's the other extreme end. I used to find that line so interesting because that's exactly how people come in, both of those extremes. Neither one of them being their actual true reality. Not as the giant of my dreams, nor the dwarfs of my fears. Both of them can be debilitating, not in proper context. So what is it saying? I no longer exist in either extreme, but can find not only a balance, but let's say if I do have big dreams, I know how to get there. And if I have big fears, I know how to challenge Myself and diminish, if not eliminate them. So neither my dreams nor my fears are going to debilitate me either way. So not as the giant of my dreams nor the dwarfs of my fears. We're going to find a balance. We're going to try and find a little bit of harmony there. What's the next line? But as a person, part of the whole, with my share in its purpose. Hear this now. But as a person, so we've reached the point where we're now looking at ourselves and we're looking around, looking in the mirror. I'm not the same person, you know, I'm not the same, let's say, individual I was when I walked in the door. This is months down the road. I'm seeing myself as a person, part of the whole. Now, in the context that this is written, it's saying to the person, look around you whether you're in a room of 250 or a room of 32 or a room of 38, okay, you're part of the whole. If you're sitting in your home with your family, your blood family members, you look around, you're part of a whole. With my share in its purpose. So when it says, but as a person, I feel reborn. Not in a religious sense, 
careful now, not in a religious sense, but in a human spiritual sense. I feel reborn. Part of the whole. I've been a part of a process with others. I haven't done it by myself. Others have been a part of this process with me. And it was necessary for others to be a part of this process with me. With my share and its purpose. Put my blood, sweat, and tears into that process. I.e., my share and its purpose. Our clients, our graduates, our staff, our alumni, we always love to say our share and its purpose. Especially after a job well done and you've done your share. That's my share and its purpose. And the purpose is whatever that larger thing is that we're trying to accomplish as a whole, whatever it may be. So if the whole family's out there washing a the car, I got the tires, you got the windows, I got the interior, you got the mats. Everyone has their share in its purpose. The purpose is getting this car looking P&Q, pride and quality. That's what P&Q means, spanking clean. So everyone has a share in its purpose. So again, but as a person, part of the whole with my share in its purpose. I feel reborn, not in a religious sense, but in a human, almost spiritual sense. I've been a part of the process with others, and I put my blood, sweat, and tears into that process, i.e., that's my share in its purpose. Okay, now we're going to quickly go back because we've been slowly going over each line, and it's easy to forget how do we get to where this, where we are right here, and how, what does it mean to where we're going here in, in, near the end. So we started with, I'm here because there is no refuge, finally from myself. And we talked about that. It's impossible to continue trying to hide from myself and running from myself. So that's why I'm here. And until I confront myself in the eyes and hearts of others, I'm running. Those breaks, until I stop long enough to take a look at myself and my life, I'm just going to continue to keep running, whether I realize it or not. Until I suffer them to share my secrets, I have no safety from them. Until I get that courage up to share with others who I really am, my experiences and the good, the bad, and the ugly, etc., I won't escape them. I'll just continue to bear the burden of them on my own. They'll continue to trouble me, impact my life, dictate what I do, control what I do. Next line, afraid to be known. I can know neither myself nor any other. I will be alone. I can't be afraid to let others know the real me. If I don't challenge that fear, that fear, if I don't challenge it with courage, I'll, not find out, I'll never find out who I am, nor... Well, I experience learning who others are. Don't forget that part. I'll continue to experience what it feels like to be alone, yet surrounded by many. Where else but in our common ground can I find such a mirror? Where else but here? And here can be wherever recovery is taking place. But where else can I find others who are just like me, who had similar experiences like me, who knows what it's like to feel 
like me. Where else can I find my mirror? Or mirrors, plural. Here together, I can at last appear clearly to myself. I can finally now see who I am, helped by my own surrendering to the process and the responsible love and concern, remember that from last week, of my peers. That's the important part of that line. When people recite that or read it in morning meeting or throughout the day, and they say, here, to get, here together, I can last appear clearly to myself. They don't realize the importance of the together aspect of that. Not as the giant of my dreams, nor the dwarf of my fears. We're no longer existing in either extreme, but can find not only a balance, but if I have big dreams, I know how to get there. If I have big fears, I know how to challenge and diminish, if not eliminate them. That's what we learned. But as a person, part of the whole with my share in its purpose, that's what we just ended, ended on. I feel reborn, not in the religious sense, but in the human, almost spiritual sense. I've been a part of the process with other people. And I put my blood, my sweat, my tears into that process. And that process, another word for that process is that last phrase, with my share in its purpose. So we're near the end now. In this ground, I can take root and grow. What does that mean? In this ground, I can take root and grow. So the the in this ground part means wherever, wherever recovery is taking place, this is where I can get a foundation. So it doesn't just mean like here, literally, it's figuratively speaking, in this ground. So no matter where you're sitting or standing to get your recovery, in this ground, in that ground is where I can get a foundation, start a new beginning, so to speak, turn the page. Start a new chapter. And it says, I can take root and grow. Now, we know, theoretically, in order for something to take root and grow, there has to be dirt, soil. It has to be, you know, nutrient-rich. It has to be good soil, nurtured soil. You know, not a lot of things that we can eat grow in the desert. Things grow in the desert. It's, you know, plant life adapts and grows wherever. But I'm not sure you can find many crops in the desert to eat. So we need some nutrient-rich soil for that foundation to be, you know, under that foundation so that this new chapter of my life, this new attitude, this new way of thinking, this new way of being, this whole evolving aspect of me can take root and grow. If the environment where I'm trying to get my recovery is poisonous, 
and I often talk about this to to the family. They control what type of environment that recovery is either going to take place in or not take place in. They control that because they live in the facility. It's their home. For a period of time, it's going to be their home. They're going to sleep, eat, do everything there. So what kind of environment is going to be created? And I often talk to them about, and then that that environment, whatever it is, is going to be your legacy. So if you create an environment where recovery can take root and grow, where people can change, behaviors and attitudes can change, where the foundations of friendships can begin, then that's going to be your legacy. If you decide, and when I say you, it's an interesting word in this description because let's, you know, the family, we have two facilities out here, one holds 38, one holds 32. And if if the family, let's say the 32-bed site, if the, if the family decides that they're going to allow the environment to be negative, then for the clients that are there, even those who are dead serious about their recovery have to fight through that negativity. Now, that's not often such a bad thing because there, I'm a firm believer that as you go through the recovery process, trials and tribulations are important, are an important part of that process. Someone who sails through, doesn't experience any trials and tribulations, I'm, I'm not saying the trials and tribulations have to be devastating, but, you know, setbacks. And it doesn't have to be a, a relapse, but it could be just, you know, s- setbacks in, 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 in the life process period, okay? Um, and it could be many things. Someone can pass away, a loved one, um, or a relationship gets, you know, broken because of, you know, past behaviors and so on and so forth. So there, there's emotional setbacks, these physical setbacks. Sometimes people are experienced, you know, once they get off, you know, get out of the lifestyle and get some time away from the using of the drugs, you know, the body starts the process of recovery, right? So remember, when we say recovery, we're not just talking about, you know, recovery of the mind, the thought process and your behaviors. There's got to be some physical recovery also. You know, the body has to, you know, recover from what you're putting it through and, or have been 5, 10, 15, 25 odd years. And sometimes there's a price to pay. Yes, we all have to pay the piper in case you didn't know. Sometimes there's a price to pay. So there's nothing wrong with a little bit of trials and tribulations. So back to the environment. The family, which dictates what that environment is going to be, could really impact whether or not whether or not recovery can take root and grow. 
or can I, you know, get a foundation here where I can take root and grow? Now, the answer from from me speaking to a client will always be yes, regardless of the environment that some may want to create. You as an individual can overcome it. You can overcome it, and even if the environment is negative, plant your recovery seeds, take root, and grow. Now, how is that possible? Because you have somehow in your mind decided this is what I'm going to be doing, and if 90% of the house is interested in doing other things negative, unrelated to recovery, they're not here for the right reasons, they haven't, they haven't made their commitment yet to straighten their life out, it, it has no impact on what I'm doing. That's what I always try and, 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 and tell the clients. Because no one knows when someone's going to go through, go through treatment what the environment's going to be like in the house. It's always changing you know, going through cycles like the four seasons, you know, the, the winter, spring, fall, summer, it's it's always going through a different cycle. And each cycle has its own culture and its own environment. So some get blessed with a an environment that is all about recovery, and 90% of the people are all about recovery, and that's a beautiful thing. Some get not so blessed, and they have to struggle through you know, having family members that aren't about recovery all the time. And so the environment is a, going through the environment is a struggle. But sometimes those who experience that come out on the other end stronger for it because of what they had to go through in that environment. So I know I just went off on a tangent, but that's okay because we're talking about being able to take root and grow. And the statement is, in this ground, I can take root and grow. So that applies regardless of the environment. In this ground, I can take root and grow. And that growth is founded in earned maturity. Earned maturity and growth. The last line of the philosophy. Not alone, it's, it's deep by the way, not alone anymore as in death. Ouch. Not alone anymore as in death, but alive to myself and to others. So it's saying, I no longer feel alone as if I had died and no one cared. But I feel alive. And others feel me. They feel my life. They see me living. Not existing as I once was, you know. When you're on drugs, you're just existing. You're not living. So not alone anymore as in death. So we likened the existence of the life. Remember, when I say the life, I mean, you know, the life of the addict. It's likened to just to death. 
not literally, although we know that that is a reality for some, but in the context of what the writer is saying, not literally, but figuratively, as in death, but alive to myself and to others. Now, notice how in many of the sentences, he talks about me first, you first, and then others. So even in closing, alive to me first, I can look in the mirror and feel alive to myself. And then others, from the feedback that I'm getting from them, as a result of, listen closely, as a result of what I'm now putting out to them, they can feel that I'm alive, the way he wrote that last line. Because if you take it a step further, picture yourself being out there when you were in the in the life before, and what you were putting, what 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 kind of energy you were putting out there to others, versus the you of today, what kind of energy you're now putting out and how noticeably different it is to others. So not alone anymore as in death, but alive to myself and to others. And every day, every morning, family recites this philosophy. And it's very important that it doesn't become a just an exercise of a recital but that the lines are understood for what they really mean and how it applies to me on a daily basis as I progress through my recovery process and ultimately get to the point where I'm stating the very last line of the philosophy in a manner as if, you know what, I feel this. I now feel this. I'm not alone anymore as in death, but I'm alive to myself and to others. And you actually feel it, and others can sense it. Slash OCG, philosophy. And from here on in, I'm calling it the Individual's Recovery Manifesto, because even though it was written by a client of Daytop in the mid-1960s, and adopted by Daytop to be their philosophy for residents, okay? If you read it and listen to what it means between each line, what it really means in reading between the lines, it applies to everybody in recovery. I don't care where you're getting your recovery from. It applies to everybody that's trying to get this recovery thing going. The Individual's Recovery Manifesto. So once again, in closing, I am here because there is no refuge, finally, for myself. Until I confront myself in the eyes and hearts of others, I am running. Until I suffer them to share my secrets, I have no safety from them. 
afraid to be known. I could know neither myself nor any other. I will be alone. Where else but in our common ground can I find such a mirror? Here together, I can at last appear clearly to myself, neither the giant of my dreams nor the dwarfs of my fears, but as a person, part of the whole, with my share in its purpose. In this ground, I can take root and grow, not alone anymore as in death, but alive to myself and to others. Okay, folks, that's our topic for today. We're going to take a music break, and I'm sure this time it's a music break, and come back on the other side. I see we've got a couple of calls on the board holding. I appreciate it. And we will enter our recovery support time. So quick break, and we'll be right back.
Emerge on Recovery is a program of OCG Radio. It deals with many topics related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment and recovery. Our Recovery Support Time is a show segment where you can receive support from our host for any questions or issues you wish to present related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment or recovery. You can reach our host live by calling 646-564-9909. That's 646-564-9909. Or you can send your questions via email at any time to ocgworkca at gmail.com. That's ocgworkca at gmail.com. And our host will respond to your questions on the air. Roach on Recovery. Recovery Support Time. A time for us to help you. Quick uh, turnaround recovery, and we hope uh, 
that you'll watch, rewatch, re re rewatch and rewatch again the tape from last night's forty nine er game and I'm sure that will help you uh recover quickly. Yeah. Yes, it certainly will. Uh if, if you haven't watched it twice already. Uh I've watched I've watched it maybe one and a half. I watched the full game and then fast forwarded through some of the highlights. What I have watched more than once today is the uh the post game interviews and the coach speak and all that. Okay. So, first and foremost, I understand that you are operating with yet again another new microphone. Is that accurate? That is that is correct. So the wife on the drive home from work to her bedridden husband said to tell you that the new microphone sounds good, sounds better than the last one. Well, that makes uh, double uh, double goods, I should say. Uh, one from the brains, one from the authority. Okay. Okay. So that's, perfect. That's that's very good to know that the mic sounds good. Well, we'll work yeah, on very the good. we'll work on the feedback in the headsets at, at another time during another call. But uh, once again, thanks, thank you, Mr. Co-host, Mr. Producer, call screener, clip dropper. That's another one for calling yes. in and uh, hope you enjoy the rest of the show. Absolutely, keep up the strong work. We will be back next week. All right, sir. Thank you. All right, sir. All right, bye-bye. Yeah. All right, that was our co-host calling in from his bed with the thermometer sticking out the side of his mouth and the cover is pulled all the way up to his eyelids as he is shivering while watching replays of the 49ers romp over the Minnesota Vikings last night, which I watched none of. Anyway. Let's get to our first uh, recovery support time call. Who's been holding the longest? Okay. Here we go. Hi. Can I have your first name and your hometown, please? Thank you for calling Uh, Motion Recovery. uh, Yes, my name is James. I'm from Hayward. Hi, James. How are you? I'm doing good. How about yourself? Good. How can we help you? Uh, My question is to you, what was it that changed in your life that made you want to help people the way you help people now. Wow, that's a uh, great question. Well, I always knew I wanted to help people because my first line of work that I thought was in my blood, in my it is in my blood, in my DNA throughout the family was going into following my father into law enforcement. But uh, because of my mother and my three sisters, and I hope all four of you all hear me, uh, talk to me out of it in the mid-'80s. Otherwise, I would either be retired or still on the New York City Police Department. Uh, things happened differently, and things went a different way for reasons uh, that they should have. I emphasize they should have. And as a result, I ended up doing something that was a million times more fulfilling, which is helping other people get something that I achieved, which was recovery. 
so you yourself used to be an addict? Yes. Wow. That's crazy. I did not know that. Yes. How did you do it? Well, first I made a decision at a certain time that I didn't want to be an addict anymore. Right. And once I made that decision, that was it. I just want to qualify that. That does not, that is not the normal thing that happens to everybody where they just reach a point, they make a decision, and that's it, and they move on to the next phase of their life, and that's never to be heard from, seen from again. Right. The reality is people experience relapse, troubles, and so on and so forth. That was not my reality. So I say to people, you can make the commitment and the decision, and you'll know within yourself, not outside of yourself, within yourself, that this this flip has occurred. And once it occurs, it's like a spiritual experience. So I can the only way I can ever describe it to people. And other people who have had the same thing say the same thing. They say, yeah, you can't put it into words, but you know inside of you that, you know what, I'm done with that life, and I'm all about doing something different now. And so you don't have to worry about that, you know, hey, am I still going to do this, still going to do that, so on and so forth, because you made the decision that, no, I'm done with that. Right. So all of your focus goes on what do I now need to do to get my life back on track? That's where 100% of your energy goes. Yeah, that is true. Well, thank you for answering that question for me. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. Anything else? Uh, Yeah, one more thing. You know, they always say that people, you can't help somebody unless they themselves don't want help. How do you really know when you want help, and how do you ask for it? Well, I'll I'll flip the question. I'll reverse it. Asking for help is just asking for help. So if you want help, in order to, you know, contained within the question really is the answer, because normally a person who's addicted to drugs can't help themselves they require help from somebody else, either someone helping them get into treatment or someone pointing them in the right direction to get help. You know, it's very rare that someone does it all on their own. I don't know anyone who has done it all on their own. Family member helps them. Somebody helps them. So when you reach the point where your pride and your ego and all of that goes out the window and you have What's left is humbleness and humility, and you reach out to another human being, whomever that may be, for them to help you. You extend the hand, and they extend the hand back. Now, what was the the first part of the question? I answered the last part. What was the first part of the question again? How can you help somebody that doesn't want help? You can't. 
You can only wait until you can only wait until they're ready. Well, uh, thank you for answering my questions. I really do appreciate it, sir. Okay. Thank you for calling. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. Great questions. That's the first time I actually anyone has actually asked me on air that personal question about myself. So it's pretty good. All right. Let's go to our next call who's been holding a while. Hi. Your first name, please, in your hometown. Hello. 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 Can we have your first name, please, in your hometown? Todd from Redwood City. Hi, Todd. How can we help you? Yes. Uh, one of the key things a person should have is they prepare to transition out of out of treatment. A plan. Like um. They need to have a plan. Just any type of plan. Well, what am I? Where am I going to live? Am I, and if I'm, so let's let's say you're working. Where am I going? What's my housing situation going to be? Am I going to need a car at some point in order to continue going to and from work? You know, a plan of addressing the normal living things that a person needs because those things are so important to keep a person. You know, grounded in recovery. I see. So what's my, you know, what's my plan? Oh, you can't okay. just walk out with no plan. I got to have a plan. Hmm. And usually, your counselor will help you. You know, you, you know, you as yourself have an idea of what you want to do, how you want to go about it, and the counselor helps guide and shape that with you. And so when you walk out that door, you got this plan, whether it's stuck in your head or written on paper, I recommend both. You got a plan. And then you could, you know, alter it as, you know, as life comes at you. Hmm. Wow. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. So one of the advantages of not having uh, my co-host today is I actually, because I I simultaneously can't screen calls at the same time uh, as I'm obviously talking. So I get to do my, uh, we, we get a buildup of all of our written questions that come in via email and fax or what, what have you. Uh, they just build up, build up, build up, and we don't get time to get to the X-Files. So I'm going to steal some time and get to some of the X-Files questions while I have an opportunity. So Mike from San Mateo wants to know, why is heroin the hardest drug to kick? I'd like to guess that Mike heard this from one of my answers to a question of what do I think is the hardest drug to get off of? And I think I said heroin. Um, why is heroin the hardest drug to kick? So let's say, uh, let's not use the term kick. I think it's unfair in the context of the question because, yeah, you kick heroin, you don't kick marijuana, you don't kick cocaine, you don't kick methamphetamine, or not usually, et cetera. So the term kick usually is associated with heroin because the kicking is the withdrawals and blah, 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 blah. So, but the reason why I said it was, it was because of 
the, the the paying the piper part of the physical withdrawals that a person has to go through. However, the flip side of that was once the person does that, they have, in my opinion, this is just in my opinion, in my they have the easiest road to recovery because for a heroin addict, the the issue of their addiction, 75%, at some point, 75% of it becomes just the physical aspect. You know, they may want to get, you know, stop doing this, change your life and so on and so forth. But, man, it is just hard to, to, to kick this thing. There's that word, kick this thing. But if they can do that and survive, not literally, just figuratively, survive the, the – and, and now there's stuff to help ease the, the, that withdrawal process. Back in the day, there was nothing. Guys just had to kick cold turkey and deal with whatever the withdrawal symptoms are, and it's different for everybody. But now that's not the case. So, you know, there's more options for people to help ease those symptoms. But once they have surpassed that withdrawal time frame and they're no longer experiencing those symptoms – to me, they have the easiest road because the withdrawals was the biggest stumbling block to get past. And that's why I always say someone who successfully, in quotes, kicks heroin and gets into recovery and goes back, I call them the stupidest people on the planet when it comes in the reeks of recovery, of course, because the work they put in to physically get off the drug. And to go back, that's a difficult thing to deal with physically and emotionally and mentally. So that's that. All right. Back to the phones. Hi. Can I have your first name, please, and your hometown? Uh, this is Jesse of uh, East Palo Alto. Hi, Jesse. Welcome to the show. How can we help you? Uh, thanks uh, for the welcome. I was wondering... Uh, how can I uh, distance myself from uh, those individuals who uh, smoke marijuana and also uh, drink? And also, how can I not drink even though, you know, drinking is not one of my, let's say, uh, drugs of choice, drug of choice? Mm -hmm. So, are you referring to like, you know, there are going to be people back in your circle, so to speak, whether it be family, friends, or what have you, that still right. engage, right? Exactly. Okay. And then point number two, you know, you're not a drinker. Uh, do you have have you did you drink like were you what I would call like an event drinker like you might have drank like on New Year's or at a social gathering or something like that? Right, more more so okay. uh, sociable. Yeah, you're right. Uh -huh. Okay, all right. So if that's just on the drinking aspect, that's a personal. If if you're not an alcoholic, that's a that's a personal choice whether or not you ultimately want to go back to doing that or you just want to abstain. Period. That's something you have to decide. Right. And that decision only applies to people under that description. who They're not drinkers. 
They only drink, you know, either at a social gathering, at a wedding, or at a you know birthday party, or a, you know uh, for New Year's. But they're not drinking every single day, every single night. Okay. Right. The the issue in terms of dealing with, you know, people in my circle, people in my family, et cetera, that might still indulge. The way you conquer that. There's two ways to conquer that. One, I'm not a big fan of because it's not grounded in reality. So some people may say, well, you know what? You've got to knock those people off. <laughs> just, you've got to just excommunicate them from your circle, from your life. Well, guess what? That's not reality. Right. Because what if one of them is a family member? What if one of them is a close friend? And whatever the case may be, it's, they may be people who you can't avoid. Right. Because of their relationship to you. So I'm not a big fan of that line of thinking that you have to excommunicate those people. I'm more a fan of you being clear within yourself of what where you stand and that what they're doing is not going to influence what you do. So if there's right, a big family gathering... If there's a big family gathering for Thanksgiving and Uncle Tom is over there in the corner with Uncle Jesse and they got the huge blunt being lit up, okay, and even though you're way on the other side or even if you're around the table ch- chatting with the other cousins, nephews, and whomever, that the aroma is not going to influence in you and make you want to do it, okay, that's what they're choosing to do and that's that. What does it have to do with you? That's where I would like you to be in your recovery, that you can be stuck in an elevator with 15 people smoking marijuana, and you can look around and acknowledge, hmm, everyone seems to be smoking weed. But it has no bearing on what you decide to do. Follow me? Right. Yeah, that that makes sense, yeah. If I'm really going to recover, you know, I shouldn't uh, let that, uh, you know, be a factor as far as I'm being around a lot of people. And then just because they're smoking now, now all of a sudden I feel the need to want to smoke. That makes sense. No, they should have no bearing on what you do and what you're about. Right. Okay? Yes, sir. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm not a uh, preacher of the excommunicate your friends and family theory. And I know that's, you know, been around for a long time, and some say it and some don't, and that's neither here nor there. But I've never been a preacher of that theory that that's what you need to do. That's not real. I mean, what if it's a close family member and they come to family gatherings and, and you know, they're outside and they're lighting up or, 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 or drinking a beer or whatever the case may be? That's no bearing on me. They're not gonna, it's not going to make me decide to do something that I don't choose to do, emphasize the word choose, because it would be a choice. It's not a mistake if I accidentally pick up the joint and start smoking it. I would have to make a choice to do that. It wouldn't be a mistake. So, no, they're not going to have any imp. They don't control what I'm doing. 
that's where you want to reach in your recovery, that n- no environment, because most people are going back to less than ideal environments. That's the reality. And the other reality is even if you are going back to quote-unquote ideal environments, that doesn't mean that you, if, if you so choose, that you can't find something that you want that you shouldn't be doing. But let's say you don't want, you don't want to do those things. But you know what? It's prevalent in your environment. It exists. You walk out the front door, it hits you on the left, hits you on the right. It's right in front of you, right behind you. Well, we got to build you to the point that, you know what? As much as we don't like that environment, I got to exist. I mean, I got to live in that environment. So I got to be strong enough in my recovery that nothing in my surroundings, in my environment, is going to dictate what I do. And, of course, I may work and hope to get out of this environment because who wants to be in that environment? But the reality is sometimes that's all, that's where we are. That's where we are. That's where we live. So I'm sure I'm not going to counsel you to exist and live someplace where you're not going to be. I'm going to say, what's your environment like? Your home environment, your neighborhood environment? Oh, it's like this, it's like this, like this. Well, we're going to, we're going to, our goal is to prepare you to successfully be in recovery and handle that environment. That's the goal. All right, back to the phones. Not sure where I was just going with all that nonsense. (laughs) Hi, welcome to the show. Can we have your first name, please, and your hometown? Hello? Hello? Yes, first name, please, and your hometown. Mike? San Mateo. Hi, Mike. Welcome. How can we help you? Um, I've I've been trying to get away from this certain person who uh, keeps following me around. I, I tell her, you know, I'm not doing drugs and stuff anymore, but she follows me around all the time, and she smokes weed in my face, and she tries to get me to snort coke with her and stuff. And I tell her, you know, we don't have a relationship or nothing, but she keeps coming around and giving me a, a, a rough way to go, and. Uh, I've done everything I could to stay away from her, but she's always at my house, and she's always, you know, there talking to my brothers until I get home, and she comes over and talks to me, and um, I just can't get get her away from me. What do you suggest I do, call the cops on her or something? Well, Mike, I think the first thing you got to do is look in the mirror and say you're irresistible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's the first thing you have to do. Well, I I can't recall offhand, so I'm just saying this without really thinking, thinking hard, but you would be the first guy I've encountered that has a difficult time of getting rid of a female that he is not interested in for whatever reason. Well, I don't want to do drugs anymore. Okay. And she can't make you? No, she can't make me do drugs, but... You know, I, if something's stuck in your face long enough, you'll be able to go back to it. 
I understand that and don't necessarily agree with it, but if, if you are in control of the environment, and I don't know that, so like if it's your home or your apartment, okay, you're in control of that environment. And so if you're not in control of it, like so if you're sharing a living space with somebody and they're letting her into the environment, that's a different circumstance. And so that makes it a little bit more difficult for you to kind of control her entry and into the space, correct? Yes. Okay. So if if you're not in control of the environment and therefore you don't have really the control to stop her from coming in because she's coming in to visit other people or whatever, then you're faced with a dilemma that is going to really test your commitment. Mm. Because if, if moving is not a reality, then I have to deal with my environment. If this person keeps coming into my environment, I somehow have to send them a message that, listen, I'm not about this, so stop asking me, stop pushing it towards me, et cetera, et cetera. Well, my and sister has offered to beat her up, so. No, we don't want to go down that road. We don't want to go there. We don't want to go there, Mike. We just got to make it clear. Look, this is not where I'm living. This is not how I'm living. I'm not about that. So I'm sorry. Yeah. And if you got to, you know, each time you just got to reinforce that. And it's interesting. The more you hear yourself reinforce that, it reinforces it in you. Mm-hmm. I hear you. And then, and then the last thing, Mike, you know, you got to stop making yourself so resist, you know, irresistible. Oh, yeah. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Good stuff. All right. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Mike. Bye-bye. All right. Good friend of the show. He also sends us questions in. I just read one of his questions. All right. Let's go back to the phones. Hi. Welcome to the show. Can I have your first name, please, and your hometown? Uh, Kenneth Spoonhunter, and I'm from Pacifica. All right, no last names, Kenneth. Oh, sorry. That's all right. Go ahead. How can we help you, sir? Uh, yeah, I was just wondering. Um, um, would you think it's smart to jump into a relationship early in my sobriety? In theory, no. Okay. Now, what do you consider, like, in terms of length of time early in your sobriety? Well, I've been in my sobriety for about eight days now. Um, But it's always when I try to get sober that I want to – I can't stop thinking about, you know, women, you know. And I want to just jump into, like, a relationship with with a female I don't know why. Well, it's not abnormal. Um, you're you're eight days into your recovery, so you're very very early in, okay. And you know, when the cobwebs start clearing, and the body uh-huh. starts to recuperate and recover, and the mind starts to recuperate and recover. Yeah. You know what I mean. Yeah. You know, you start thinking about different things that you didn't think about when you were out there doing what you were doing. Yeah. You know what I mean? 
So what you now have to do is start working working on disciplining your mind, your spirit, your body, that's the physical, to focus on you and your well-being and your recovery. Right. That's what everybody tells me. They say I need to focus on myself and get yes. myself well before I am able to think about, you know, caring for others. Yes. Yeah. Whoever's telling you that, they're telling you the right thing. That's my grandma. My grandma. She okay. tells me that. Well, that's right. That's what you got to do, Mike. I'm sorry. Kenneth. Kenny. <laughs> all right. That's, that's, that's all I have. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you. Stay stay focused. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, all right. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye. So I thought, tell me, tell me, who didn't think he was going to say eight months? I thought he was going to say eight months. He said eight days. He's still an embryo in recovery. Days into the first trimester. That's, uh, let's see. The, the, the air wax of addiction is still working its way out of your ears. In theory, generally speaking, people who enter recovery, usually at the 90-day mark, the three-month mark, is when you really start to feel a difference all around in all facets of your being. That's about how long it really takes to get enough of the toxins out the system and, you know, the mind, the cobwebs out and so on and so forth. And you're really now uh, eating properly, sleeping properly, and, you know, able to retain information and apply information and so on and so forth. That's why, and I know this is another subject, but I just got to say, well, I got it in my mind, you know, when they, you know, limit treatment to only nine, especially residential to 90 days. I mean, if people are just starting to get grounded, in all facets, not just grounded in, oh, I'm starting to get this recovery thing and what it means, but they're starting to get their sleep pattern back correctly. They're starting to eat right. And, you know, all of these things, they're starting to get attention to their medical needs. And all Oh, time to go. We're not paying for anymore. Just when they're starting to get, you know, turn that corner. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to fight with my co-host about this eventually, but I, I got that, that, that show in my holster about the Affordable Care Act and what it's doing. Y'all going to hear it one day. I don't care how boring it is. It says, no, we're not going to play that. All right. Let me go back to the X-Files. So we got time. Uh, what is it, Tom, from Redwood City? This is really amazing to me, and I don't know if it's a if it's a cultural phenomenon that why there's so much focus now, or is it? It's just because now, uh, there's a forum where people are asking this question. But 
Here's another question. Can there be successful relationships during treatment? Now, I don't know what the person means if they mean like what Kenneth was just talking about, just, you know, like someone outside of treatment while you're in treatment, or if they mean in treatment with other people that are in treatment. But in either case, I mean, in theory, the answer is, yeah, I mean, yeah, there can be successful relationships because there are people who come into treatment that are already in relationships. They're either married or they're in long-term relationships, or there is a, you know, they're a, they're a, they're a father of a child, so there's a, you know, some kind of a relationship, good, bad, or ugly, with the mother of the child, or vice versa. So there are relationships that are existing with folks outside of the treatment environment, and those have to be managed, let's say, let's use that word. But we did a whole show. I think we did two shows on what was the last show? The the the, the recovery romance about how they fail ninety nine point nine percent of the time. So if that's what he's talking about. No, there can't be any successful relationships. But he didn't put the question in context, so it's hard to say. So I had to answer both. Sorry, Mary. Redwood said he wants to know how long can a person stay clean without the twelve step program. That's I don't know. That's not a it's a it's a relative question. I should say I was going to say it's not relevant. It's a relative question to the individual. There are people who are successfully in recovery and for twenty five years and never stepped foot in a twelve step program, and there are people who have been in recovery for 25 years, who have done it through 12-step programs alone. So it's an individual thing of whether or not a person, which one is going to work or not. I, I'm a fan of using both. But it doesn't matter because if, if, your first, if the first door that opens up to you is a 12-step program and that works, and has worked and continues to work, then that's it. But if the first door is uh, another venue and that works, then that's what works. And some people combine both. And that works for them. So there's no, nothing is etched in stone. There's no script that everyone has to follow. You know, no one knows which door is going to open first for you, which, you know, which treatment uh, uh, milieu is going to be the one that, you, that you're faced with for the first time and whether that one's going to take and jive with you or not. Nobody knows that. No one can predict that. So it's all based on what you experience and whether or not it grabs hold of you or you grab hold of it, and that becomes your saving grace. Nobody knows. So that's hard to say. All right, let's go back to the phones. Uh, we have some time left on the clock, so hi, welcome to the show. Can we have your first name, please, and your hometown? Um, my name is Vicente. I'm from Redwood City. Hi, how can we help you? Yeah, I was trying to ask, how can I quit using met- methadone? What are you dosing at? 80. Milligrams. How long have you been on methadone? A year. 
Were you using heroin prior to? Yes. For how long? I barely started, like, when I was 17. How old are you now? 19. How did you use heroin? IV, or did you snort it, smoke it? How did you use it? I snorted it. Okay. The best way to taper down, and only you, you only you will know the ultimate answer. It's a trial and error thing. Yeah. But you can start at any, like two milligrams, five milligrams every two weeks, and see yeah. how you feel. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And let it go for another week or two weeks, and then go again, maybe down two, down five. You know. You have to try and trial and error and figure out how much can I go down where I don't feel physically the impact as much. I can deal with it. And then how long can I then stay there before I go down again? So it might be like every two weeks I can go down five or every two weeks I can go down two. And before you know it, before you know it, you'll be tapered off. Try that. But don't make the mistake. Don't make the mistake that some people make, and they go too fast. And because they go too fast, and they don't like the way they feel, they have to go yeah. back up. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you. All right. Have You're a welcome. Good day. You too. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Yeah, methadone is uh. It's a hard, hard, hard thing. It's it, it serves its purpose um, as an alternative to getting out of that life, and um, you know, getting into recovery. They call you know, medi- medi- medication-assisted therapy is what it's now called. Um, but when it comes time when someone says, "Hey, I want to get off this," also, um, you know, it, it takes time, and you gotta be willing, be patient to successfully do it. And sometimes people are impatient and they try and get off it too quick and they suffer the, you know, physical consequences and they got to get back on and, and take your time. And eventually before you know it, you'll be tapered off. All right. I think we've got time for another call. Let's go here. Hi, welcome to the show. Can we have your first name please? And your hometown. Hello. Hello? Hello. Hi, this is Mike Hi. again. Mike again. Welcome back, Mike. Two times hey. in one day. Wonderful. Two times in one day. Hey, listen, I uh, I talked to her, and she says that she's not going to be doing that stuff no more around me. So I appreciate it. After I got the phone with you, I went and I talked to her. She lives next door, and we talked for about five, ten minutes, and I got kind of rough with her verbally, and... Uh, she said she didn't understand why I was so upset with her, but she said she quit doing that. So I appreciate the information you gave me. Well, you're very welcome. I just wanted to call and tell you that. Okay. Thank you. All right, thank you. All right, Mike. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, that was the first. Having someone call right back, go put something into action and call right back and tell us how it uh, how it turned out. So we appreciate that. And uh, 
Hopefully he can keep her at bay. All right. I got some time to get some X-Files in. Okay, I'll I'll read this question. It's uh, kind of delicate, but uh, he asked it. So, uh, Ryan, I just got sober. What's the effect drugs have on my sperm count? We have no idea, Ryan. We're not doctors. Go to your doctor and find out the answer to that question. Maybe it is a test. I don't know. Uh, let's see. More questions on romantic relationships and treatment. I think we've dealt with that. One question from Mark, can relationships be fruitful even after completion of the treatment program? I think we dealt with that, especially if they're talking about with other clients. No. If you're talking about outside relationships, think of it this way. If you've done the work on yourself that you should have done, you come out a better person, more prepared to deal appropriately with existing relationships, whether they are inter I-N-T-E-R, interpersonal or intra, I-N-T-R-A, personal relationships. You're better prepared, more informed off of drugs, which, you know, change your mood and personality, et cetera. Um, So you should be ready to at least try. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank all of our callers, our listeners, our surprise call from our co-host who's nursing himself back to health. Uh, it was the Daytop OCG philosophy, the individual's recovery manifesto was our topic. We should be back live next Tuesday. The co-host should be in his chair. And so until next time, folks, thanks for listening and thanks for calling in. And uh, we'll be right back at you next week.
And walk amongst the stars at night I'd like to know the taste of honey in my life In my life Well, I've shared so many pains And I've played so many games this evening thank you for listening be sure to listen to our next broadcast tuesday at 4 p.m pacific standard time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash ocg radio like us friend us and follow us on facebook at facebook.com forward slash ocg and on twitter at ocg you can listen to podcasts of all our shows on itunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. 
This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. Until then, baby, are you gonna let it pull you down and make